Uh, this section of James is going to open up a ton of stuff. And for these next few verses, we're going to have to spend a considerable amount of time, I think, unpacking them well. Uh, because if there's a topic about which there is more controversy among the saints, I can't think of one than the, the connection between prayer and faith and how we understand that in its biblical context. When it comes to prayer and when it comes to faith, we know we're all supposed to pray. Um, we know we're supposed to do it, and we all do it, at least some, those of you here that know, that know Christ. Uh, we all think that we ought to do more of it, and we at least have some idea of how we think it works. But then we come to some words like we saw here in, in verse 15, and I'm going to round this out by saying what we need is a, a fully rounded faith for prayer, one that a robust faith that takes into account all that Scripture says about faith and prayer and not just handpicks or, or nitpicks one or two places in Scripture so that we aren't clear on the whole of what it is we're supposed to be looking at. So we get to a verse like this, James 5, um, verse 15, and just the first part of the verse, and we read something like this, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and all of us have prayed for somebody who was sick, and they weren't necessarily healed. And so we say, what in the world is this prayer of faith? And why is it I don't seem to be able to make it work? How does it function? What am I supposed to do with it? What does that look like? And the answers to that, unfortunately, in our day and age, are as sometimes as strange and magical and superstitious as they can possibly be and have little or nothing to do with what the Scripture says about it. So that being the case, what I want to do today is actually build sort of a biblical backdrop for this passage that we're going to look at in detail over the, the next couple of weeks. So he's going to apply prayer and faith to three things, to suffering, to cheerfulness, which is not a context for prayer most of us would consider, and then lastly, to sickness. So how do we pray the prayer of faith? What is that? What, what can I expect? It was, unfortunately, I think some of us have taken our theology of prayer and faith, not from the Scripture, but from a, uh, a 19th century into the 20th century, Scottish dramatist by the name of J.M. Barry. J.M. Barry penned these words, and I think a lot of people may even think they're in the Bible. He wrote, quote, Dreams do come true if only we wish hard enough. Now, for many of us, even in the church, that's the way we think of faith. That's the way we think of prayer. If I just pray hard enough, if I just believe hard enough and long enough, whatever it is I'm looking for, I know I'm going to get. Now, J.M. Barry was not a Christian. He was working off something that's closer to what we saw a real impact on in the last few years. I'm sure some of you are familiar with the book that Oprah touted for so long, The Secret. The Secret works off of that principle. It's actually what it's called as the principle of attraction. And the idea of the law of attraction or the principle of attraction is this. If I maintain a steadily positive thought 
about money or success or health, and I successfully keep negative thoughts from impinging on those positive thoughts, then eventually the universe will bring to me what it is I want. So my positive thoughts attract those things from the rest of the universe. Now again, it's got kind of a nice ring to it, and you might think, well, gee, that sounds an awful lot like faith, but it's not what the Bible discusses as faith at all. Um, in fact, there's an awful lot of people who walk around having all these super positive thoughts, and the universe doesn't bring them that stuff at all because the universe isn't a person. God is a person. And we don't mechanically somehow manipulate the universe, and we don't mechanically manipulate God. And if those are the thoughts that are feeding into the way that we understand prayer and faith, then we're going to find ourselves in a a dreadfully conflicted place over time. So I want X, and if I just believe God will give it to me, as long as I believe it long enough and hard enough without doubting, I'll get it. Well, let me use an absurd illustration or two to show you that that's not going to happen. Okay, God, I'm going to believe you for a new primary color. I'm going to believe you for a third arm that grows out of my chest so I can work the computer while I'm doing other things, particularly feed myself. I'm going to believe you for an extra eye on this side of my head so I can look at my date while I'm in the car driving. Now, God's not giving you those things. And I don't care how long you believe for them and how hard and how positive your thoughts are, those foolish realities will not come to pass because this isn't some sort of a mechanical process. Um, I heard one actually say that. God is kind of like a soda machine. You put the money in at the top and you get your, your, your goods out at the bottom. No, he's not. That's a blasphemous approach to, to who God is and what he does. So, no, I don't care how hard you pray and how long you pray, God will not allow you to invent a three-sided square or a round triangle. Those are contradictions in terms. They don't even make sense, and we're not about to to get that. I I keep praying for my career as a ballerina, and it's just not coming about. (laughs) So how does faith itself work? What What does that look like? Is there some immaterial power that we can just exercise by believing, and then we can bring about whatever it is we desire, good or bad? Do we just kind of operate the, the, the good side, the light side, or the dark side of the force? Is that, is that what prayer is? Has Star Wars given to us our theology of faith? Uh, is that what the Bible teaches? That has to ultimately be the question. And I'm going to argue over the next uh, little bit here that that is precisely what the Bible does not teach. Um, that it does not teach about faith in those terms, even though that's a very popular approach. So, as a matter of fact, we might call that approach, and maybe you've heard this somewhere before, is people having faith in faith. What they believe is that faith has power by itself. I don't know, maybe you've, you've been there. And so if I can just get great big greasy gobs of faith and I can pull them out of my pockets, then I'll be able to magically get God to do whatever I want Him to do in the universe. But faith by itself is not a power. And it's so unfortunate that we've made this Strange connection that is not the way the Bible speaks about faith at all. 
Let me give you one illustration from Scripture that might be helpful in that regard. You remember that there's this woman who has an issue of blood in the Gospels. She's had it for 12 years. She's had a hemorrhage. And she has spent all of her money on doctors. She's gone back to them over and over. They haven't been able to cure her. Uh, apparently the uh, health care reform hadn't taken place yet. So, so she was still struggling with that. That was just a joke. You know that. All right. So, so she's struggling with that. And she has faith that Jesus can heal her. And so she goes to him. And she touches the hem of his garment. And she's healed. And Jesus says to her, woman, your faith has made you whole. Now, look at the context of the story and note what faith did. The only thing faith did is it brought her to Jesus. If her faith by itself as a self-contained power was all that was needed, then she didn't need Jesus to actually heal her. She just needed to believe. This is what faith ultimately does. It brings us to God. It brings us to Christ. We trust in Him, not in the thing. We trust in Him, not in our faith. But we can get this idea that it's all in the faith, and the faith is this some sort of nebulous power source that I have, and that's really not how Scripture paints the picture. As a matter of fact, there's a a reality of this, an approach, that approach in particular fails to recognize a key aspect of genuine faith as it's given to us in Galatians 5. Actually, if you've got your Bible, turn to Galatians 5. I didn't put this up on the screen, and you're probably all wondering about this. I'll get back to it in a second. This is, in fact, my wife's favorite, one of my wife's favorite paintings. Don't you love it? I mean, it's really something. It, it was painted by a master, by Vermeer. That's one of her favorite paintings. And there are lovely brush strokes in there and textures and layers and colors. Isn't it exciting? We'll come back to it in a second. So Galatians 5. Galatians 5, 6. Here's a connection that we we miss because often we don't read the Bible broadly enough. Over 150 times in the Scripture, from the Old Testament coming into the New, there are two things linked together in the same verse. And we miss this, and we miss an entire uh, world of theology about faith. And that is that faith or faithfulness and love are linked. Here they're linked very clearly and inextricably for us. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, he's talking about salvation, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It doesn't matter whether you were a Jew and then converted or a Gentile and then converted. That would be circumcision being the the Jew and the uncircumcised being the Gentiles. He said, but that isn't the, the, the thing that counts in Christ, but only faith working through love. Well, what's the connection there? If faith is a generic power source, I don't even have to know God or love God. And that's not the point at all that have completely turned this into something mystical or magical or superstitious. And then you'll build all kinds of strange theology out of, out of that. The genuine faith of the Bible is a faith that has its working principle as love. Because faith isn't a native power by itself. If I don't know Him so that I love Him, then I can't 
trust Him. The key here isn't great big greasy gobs of faith. The key is knowing Him well enough to trust Him, to love Him, to rest there, not only in my love for Him, but in the knowledge of His love for me. So I'm going to use that as a platform to survey ten essentials. But first, I, I want you to look back at this lovely piece of work by Vermeer. Uh, I like Vermeer. He's, he's really good. Well, Vermeer painted this too. And, and he painted that up there. That, that's lovely. That's full of brush strokes and colors and textures. They're kind of subtle down here, but you can see them. And, and he painted that section. Look, there's that little streak of blue right there. I just love that streak of blue. That's one of my favorites. And, and he painted this kind of nebulous thing over here. I'm not sure what that is exactly. And, and Vermeer painted, painted all that stuff. Yeah, he, he really did. And, and he painted this stuff too. He painted all of that other stuff. He, wow. He painted that. Does anybody know what this painting's called, by any chance? Pearl, right? Girl with the pearl and everything. Until you have looked at the entire landscape, you do not understand what that little thing meant. That's the way it is with faith. Until you understand the full biblical landscape, if you're just pulling out a verse like that earring and saying, that is the whole of my theology of faith, You've missed the picture. So we've got to go back and get a much more sweeping feel for this rather than one half of one verse, the prayer of faith will save the sick. Now that's true, but it's also true within a context, not only of that passage, but of that book, and then of the New Testament, and then of the Bible as a whole. And I've got to draw those things together if I'm going to understand this well. So, let's try and build some some principles here that will help us understand the way faith works. And then in the coming weeks, we'll apply that to, to prayer. And the first thing that I have to, if you will, have faith in is whether or not I believe God is good. Do I believe God is good? Because if I don't, I cannot pray in faith. I will suspect Him. I will assume there's some darkness to Him somewhere, some hidden thing that... I've told you all the story of Clyde, the farmer. I love this story. Clyde was a farmer, and he was on his tractor, and he was out in his field. And as Clyde was plowing his field, a tornado struck and destroyed his house and turned his tractor over, and he was pinned underneath the tractor. And then, while he was pinned under the tractor, all the diesel fuel leaked out, went across the field, and lightning struck it and lit that and burned up his crop and burned down the remains of his house. And then his wife came out, And she looked at him under there and she said, Clyde, you are a loser. I'm leaving. And she took off. And pinned there under this, seeing everything go up in flames, Clyde cries out to God and says, God, why me? 
And this voice booms back, I don't know, Clyde, something about you just bugs me. If you think that's how God's dealing with you in your life, if you don't believe God is good and can't be anything but good, you cannot pray in faith. Because all you'll be doing by your praying is trying to twist the arm of God who may or may not be good. You've got to get that square in your own mind. As a matter of fact, in 1 John, we're told that this is absolutely central to a, a basic understanding of God. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He's holy. He's good. And he cannot be anything but holy and good. I have to trust that if I'm going to trust Him. Faith begins at that place. Or we could, we could go back to Genesis 3. I won't turn back there for the sake of time this morning. You remember the account of what happened in the fall. And that is that Satan convinced Adam and Eve that God was not good. That God was withholding from them something that they should have, and if they had it, would bring them to a better place. So he, he cast the shadow. God's being stingy. God's being punitive. God's withholding from you. God has something against you. God doesn't really want you to succeed because after all, he's got the position and if you become all you can be, then he gets crowded out and God's jealous and, and he's planting these seeds in their mind that God is not good. And if you have not established the reality from the Bible that God is good, if you waver on this point, it will be impossible to pray by faith. Because it's the person of God I have to trust, not my faith. It's Him I have to trust in. We're going to come back to that over and over. So do I, and here's the question that we all need to ask ourselves. You're going to have to ask this before the day's out. And maybe wrestle with it in the days to come. Do I really believe that? Do I really believe God is good? Maybe you look around at the fallen world and you see the wickedness and the sin and all of the other things, and God is still suspect in your mind, then you will not be praying by faith. You won't. The second principle is, do I believe that God loves me? Do I live there? Do I really believe He loves me? Not just has a nice affection for me, I have a nice affection for Dunkin' Donuts, but I don't love Dunkin' Donuts like I love my wife. Unless she's gone for a week or more. And sometimes Dunkin' Donuts can eclipse that. I'm... But do I really believe God loves me? And do you know that? Maybe, maybe you're not a believer here today. Maybe you don't know Christ. You have no concept of the love of God beyond some general, you know, God's kind of a grandfatherly nice guy kind of love. But do you know that he loves you? And here's where, where our faith can take a real hit, where we can undermine our own faith. Because as 1 John 4 says, in this is love. 
Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why do I need to know that? Why do I need to to get my understanding of the love of God from the cross? For this reason. Because, and I don't know if you've ever done this, I certainly did earlier in my Christian walk. Have you determined whether or not God loves you based on whether or not He's answered certain prayers? then you can't approach him in faith. You're undermining your own faith by saying, I'm requiring God to give me the sign I want that he loves me, rather than believing the sign that he loves me, that he has given, which is, he has died for my sin. What greater love can a man have but that he would lay down his life for his breath? And so, if God doesn't give me new sneakers, then I think He doesn't love me. And what are sneakers compared to the cross? What is anything in life compared to the cross? But we will make God, His love for us, suspect, not based on how He has proved His love, but we'll make God suspect by some test we've devised for Him. Now, God, you have to jump through my hoops or I won't believe you or or know that you love me. I'm not going to believe what you say because you've got to meet my test. Since when? I would would call your minds back to that famous hymn, This is my Father's world. It's not my world. His job isn't to prove to me, although he's already done it. He said, here, just... If your faith wavers, keep coming back to the cross. Keep looking there. Fix there. This is how you know absolutely how great my love is for you. I might say that moves us over to John 16. Uh, Actually, if you've got... Is it John 16? I may have written down the wrong one. Yeah, John 16. Picking up in verse 26, well, 25. He says, I've said these things to you, speaking to his disciples just before his high priestly prayer. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father Himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Do you know that He loves you? Because if His love for you is suspect, you will not pray in faith. Let me go to the third principle. And if we don't finish these up this morning, we'll finish them up next week. The third one, and perhaps this is the most important in terms of me personally, or you personally, first have to do mainly with God and Him, His nature. But do I believe my status in Christ is that of God's own child? Do I really understand my position in Christ? 
Or do I still only see him as a deity, a disconnected deity to a fallen humanity? Have I come into that relationship with him where I've been brought into his family? Maybe you're not a believer here this morning, and and this is the reason why you can't possibly pray in faith, because you have no concept of what your relationship is with him, that it was fractured by sin, that it was absolutely severed by sin, and needs to be, you need to be reconciled to him, which can only happen through the blood of the cross. Beloved, this is for the believer. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. I mean, there's, there's even some awesome things in that to be brought out when Christ returns. But, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. Let me ask you, are you his child today? Do you know that? Have you been born again by the Spirit of Christ? Have you been made a new creature? Have you believed the gospel and trusted your soul to Christ's atoning sacrifice at Calvary so that your sins might be completely forgiven and his righteousness put on your account? Do you know you're his child today? Let me turn your attention back to John chapter 1 for just a moment. Where Jesus, or John addresses these things directly in a very powerful way. John chapter 1. Let's pick up and... Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light himself. John was not divine. But he came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Now, he was in the world, speaking of Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. He created it all, and yet the world did not know him, didn't recognize him for who and what he was. And he came to his own. That would be the Jewish people. And his own people did not receive him. They didn't believe him. But... To all who did receive, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. This this wasn't a physical thing. Nor of the will of man, but of God. So let me ask you, do you really believe child of God, in your status. Or, if you're not a believer here today, if you're outside of that status, it's pretty simple. By virtue of the the fracture of that relationship, praying by faith is going to be very difficult. Because you don't know Him. You're not related to Him. And He calls you to Himself today. Just believe me. Trust me. Believe the truth of my word that 
all of mankind rebelled in the garden and fell. And that I was the promised one who the Father said would come and bruise the serpent's head, the one who tempted them. And and that I have come and I've given my life a sacrifice for human sin. And if you believe me and trust me, you will have complete cleansing and be made a new creature. You, you need to know your status. Do I really believe that? I think some of us, even as professing Christians, still struggle with what that status looks like. We don't really consider ourselves His children. And He has adopted us into the family and set us as His own sons. Fourth, do I believe that the Father is both For some of you, this is going to be a struggle. Wise and wiser than I am. Why why do I come to that? Because if I don't believe that God is both wise and wiser than I am, I won't trust His decisions in the way He answers my prayer. I'll continue to think I'm wiser than He is. Now, I don't know about you in your prayer. I go to God and give Him advice on a pretty regular basis. He has yet to take my advice on anything because he knows better than I do. Someone once said that the truth is that we would make the same decisions as God if we had all the same facts. But we often don't have all the facts. Psalm 84.11 For the Lord God is a sun and shield and the Lord bestows favor and honor No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now here's the question. Do I really believe that the Father is both wise and wiser than I am? And the test is how I respond to this verse. Because what I will do when God does withhold something that I think is good, I will make God's wisdom suspect rather than think that my wisdom doesn't really know what's best right now. So I can't pray by faith. Because my faith is in my wisdom, not God's. I'm convinced I know what God needs to do for me. And if He doesn't do it for me, then He's the one who needs to get the wisdom straightened out because I know I've got it locked up. You ever been there? I have. So do I ask for answers to prayer as proof that He loves me? And then, when I come down here, do I doubt His decisions, assuming that I know better? Or can I pray with Jesus in the garden? This is what I desire. But I willingly submit to Your will above my own. That's where Jesus was. Do I believe this So that if something I perceive as good is withheld, I can trust that He knows it would not be good for me at this present time. Can I trust Him with that? See, if if not, then I, I can't pray by faith. Not because I don't have some mysterious thing called faith, but because ultimately I'm not trusting Him. And that's what faith is. It's trusting Him. It isn't trusting in faith. It's It's trusting in the living God. Matthew 11, let me just turn there quickly. If if you don't want to, you don't have to. 
Let me just read a couple of verses for you out of Matthew 11, picking up in verse 25. This is when Jesus was speaking to the unrepentant cities around him and pronouncing some woes on them. And then at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He could absolutely trust in the Father's wisdom to bring those providential events about. Do we? Do we? Or is God's wisdom suspect on every side? Do I, detr- do I distrust that the thing is good rather than God is good? You see, without these as foundations for how we approach things, we're still magically trying to twist the arm of God. And Scripture brings us to such a higher place because all of this is built on relationship. Do I know Him? Do I know His love for me? Do I know His care for me? Can I trust Him with everything, even the things I don't understand? And prayer rooted in that kind of faith, I tell you, sees all kinds of answers really does. Let me give you the fifth one this morning, we, and we're running out of time, and, and then we'll come back and visit the, the next five next week when I can think of more clever graphics. Uh, number five, do I believe that the Father has my absolute highest and best interest at heart? If I don't believe that, then I won't trust His answers. It's going to be pretty tough for me to pray by faith. But this is the testimony of Scripture. That He loves us that much. And and He has our highest and our best interest at heart. If I don't believe His clear statements in that regard, I can't pray in faith. Are not two sparrows, Jesus said, sold for a penny. I mean, let's face it. These little birds are pretty worthless. And... And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father. He's aware of every one of them and their courses and what happens in them. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So fear not, therefore. You're of more value than many sparrows. If God's paying attention to the smallest things in creation and Christ died for you, isn't He valuing you highly? And can't you trust Him in that? Do I really believe that the Father has my highest and best interest at heart? Or do I think God's missing the boat and I need to inform Him what my highest and best interest is? Because He seems to be wholly unaware. In Luke 11, and we will close with this, in Luke 11, Jesus reiterates the Lord's Prayer as it's given to us in Matthew And he expands on a portion of it. This was apparently a separate occasion when he did this. And he unpacks a lot more about this truth. And so he talks about picking up in verse 5 after giving the prayer again. He says, now which of you has a friend? And you'll go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, hey, don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. 
I tell you that we will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now if fallen men will respond, how much more will God respond? He's willing to respond. So where do I fix my cry to him? So ask, it'll be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock, it'll be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. I mean, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Now, some of us might perversely think that's funny from time to time, but apparently that was not the point here. Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Now, it's interesting, the comparison between this verse, these next two verses, and Matthew's account of this, because here is where Jesus teases out what he was explaining in Matthew. If you then, who are evil, this is the bottom line, this is his point. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give what? the Holy Spirit, to those who ask. Do I believe that He has my highest interest at heart? That He might give me Himself in answer to prayer. Well, that will bring us over to number, uh, number 7 for next week. But that is the question, isn't it? how often we're looking to God for things and He's looking to give us Himself and we're more upset about not getting the things because the truth is we don't really want more of Him. We just want the stuff. We can't pray by faith unless we believe that His answers include the fact that He has my highest and my best interest at heart. Oh, I had the privilege of uh, speaking Friday night to some a singles group, really delightful group. I had a, was a real privilege to be with them. Um, one of the things that I made mention of, and I'll go back and mention this. A lot of you know I was single for a long time. Sky was single for 44 years before we got married. Um, you can imagine there were a lot of prayers for a husband in there. Now, either God's got a really perverse sense of humor, or I'm really kind of okay on some level. So that was, you know, that's a blessing, I suppose. And maybe God was just teasing her. I'm not sure. But as I was thinking through, and many people have said, I've said it to her often, that when we got married, what an answer to prayer she was. You know the real truth? is that she is the product of a whole host of unanswered prayers. Because if, if God had brought, had not waited the time and the means and everything else, I would not have the joy of her. How grateful I am that he didn't answer the prayers that I had prayed earlier and in other ways. I didn't realize his highest and best was going to be so much higher and so much better than what I had imagined at various points along the way. 
Now, beloved, that's true for all of us. Sometimes God's highest gifts are what he refuses to give us because we don't want high enough. We don't want good enough. We just want what we think we want then. I have to believe, if I'm going to pray in faith, that his attitude toward us, toward me, is that the Father has my highest and best interest at heart. Beloved, don't trust faith. Trust God. Trust Him. Grow in the knowledge of His goodness, His grace, His mercy, His loving kindness, His wisdom. And there, the heart can find rest in the host of unanswered and confusing circumstances. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the things that you bring before us, that they are often very different than the way we conceptualize them ourselves. How we need you to open to us the truth of these things and and make them full and real. Father, forgive us for trying to do this Christian thing without being completely linked to you personally. For somehow trying to twist your arm to make you suspect, to forget who and what you are and the way that you were portrayed in the revelation of your word. Father, forgive us for for being so faithless in our approach to you. And may we not be faithless. May we be believing Trusting, knowing the God in whom we put our trust, that we might walk in courage and joy and fullness as the delight of being with you can only bring. Seal those words to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, dismissed. We'll see you tonight for communion over at the other building.